So this morning, Kevin Larson, who is our lead pastor, is going to be preaching from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Um, you can find that on page 809 in the House Bible that's in front of you. Um, but if you are able, please go ahead and stand with me as I read aloud uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be God, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Kevin's going to come on up, and let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, um, for how you teach us and guide us through it. I pray that you will speak through Kevin today, um, speak through the words he's prepared. Um, I pray that you'll soften our hearts um, to understand and to accept the grace that you freely give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see some of you back, um, at least acting like you're healthy. Hello to everyone at home watching online. Excited to jump back into Matthew and keep, keep moving. Um, today, when you hear the initials MJ, your mind might immediately go to Spider-Man. And I won't judge you too much for that. But to most Americans, I would argue, and certainly most sports fans, um, their minds are immediately going to go to none other than Michael Jordan, right? Who is absolutely, unequivocally, the greatest basketball player of all time. Just to settle that as we start. But perhaps more often, he just goes by one name, you know, Jordan, right? But back in the day, um, there was even a time when you could just say the word Mike, and people knew exactly who you were talking about. Back in the, the early 90s, um, there was a series of Gatorade commercials that featured children playing basketball with Michael himself, and ringing in the background, the, the singing of these children, the words repeated, like Mike, I want to be like Mike. Now, I grew up as a coach's son, and I'd been a gym rat for sure most of my life. Unfortunately, I was one who jumped about as high as a, a rodent, and he coupled that with the speed of a, a turtle. Um, but by that time, I had already taken my talents and brought them to the rec center here at Mizzou. And I remember one time I was playing a pickup game, and there happened to be in the game actually one of the, the best Tiger players of all time, who later would end up playing in the NBA. And he actually passed me the ball, and I blew the layup. And he gave me this just almost trademark scowl on that court that made me just want to flee to the bathroom. But I had just given up a long time ago this idea of being like Mike. 
Because no matter how much I practiced, and I practiced a lot, I wasn't fast, I couldn't jump, it was like my Jordans were nailed to the floor. Be like Mike. That's how we can so often read passages in the Bible, and especially like this one today. As this call to be someone like we feel we can never be. Being like Mike is hard, but how can we ever, ever be like Jesus? But I want you to hear this morning that these words in front of us actually bring us a lot of hope if we understand what's going on here. And here's the big idea I want you to leave with today. It's this, fight temptation in the power of him who defeated it. Fight temptation in the power of him who defeated it. Let's jump into the passage. Let's start by taking a look at just what we see happen here. Now this is truly one of those passages that we could spend weeks on. Entire books have been written about just this. We're going to have to move through it fast. But as we do, I want to make sure that we understand what it's truly about. Verse 1 tells us that the same Spirit, the one who just anointed Jesus in his baptism, leads him out in the wilderness, out into the desert. Now the wilderness isn't just a place that's marked by physical danger. You know, where you're exposed to the elements, where you're susceptible to animals. It was also known to be a dangerous place spiritually. It was associated with demonic activity in the Bible and in that culture. So, catch this. The father who just expressed his love and approval of his son allows him to be thrown right away out into harm's way. What makes things even more perilous? is the fact that he's not even eating any food. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and therefore he's hungry, you think? He's in solitude, no doubt, going out there seeking communion with his Father. He's fasting. And as it functioned in Scripture, that involves going without food to focus on prayer. But as we're going to see, there's clearly something that's even bigger that's going on here. There in the wilderness, the Lord is no doubt extremely weak. And it says in verse 3 that the tempter Satan comes to him. Verse 1, in fact, says it's the Spirit's purpose that he'd be tempted by the devil. Now, we're not sure in what form Satan comes to Jesus. You know, is it a serpent again? We don't know, but he does. And the enemy here asks the questions, and Jesus responds. But don't mistake this here. It's the Lord who's on the offensive here. Beginning his ministry by walking boldly into the, the wilderness, taking our enemy head on, going to battle for us. More on that in a bit. What we see here are three famous sentences that Satan uses to try to tempt the Lord Jesus. The first two that include these words, if you are the Son of God. So again, the Father had just spoken over his Son these words, you're my Son, at his baptism, and Satan comes to Jesus and says, do you really believe that? That he loves you? That his will is best for you? Are you really going to do his will? We see the first temptation in verses 3 and 4. The enemy says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, we may think of the desert as full of sand and maybe cacti or the wilderness as thick with trees and brush, but there in the Middle East, you would have looked around and you would have seen lots of stones everywhere. And the devil tempts Jesus, if you're really God's son, 
and you're that hungry, grab some of those rocks and just say the word, and all this will be over. What are you waiting for? And yeah, Jesus could have done that. He had the ability, at least. You know, later, doesn't he take the bread and multiply it for the crowds? But he counters Satan's challenge with the first of three quotes here from Deuteronomy, from chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Moses is telling God's people way back then, through Deuteronomy, that more than they need to eat, they need to listen to the word of God and obey what it says. And Jesus here affirms to Satan that that's too what he wants most of all. I love the, the outline Russell Moore uses. He's written an entire book on this passage. He says Satan's temptations are toward consumption, security, and status. So the enemy here is trying to get Jesus to go against his father's plan and consume, to just eat up. But the Lord here trusts his father to sustain him and to satisfy him during this trial and on into the future. The second temptation we see in verses 5 through 7. The devil takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple, built on the holy city on the hill. Again, we're not sure exactly how. But pointing down to the valley below, Satan says this in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So if you're God's Son, just jump already. I mean, don't you believe He's your dad? If He is, I mean, won't He protect you? Prove it to yourself. Prove it to me. Come on. Well, this time, Satan quotes Scripture. Right? He knows that's important to Jesus, the words of his father. So he tries to use it against him. He tries to misapply them and try to trick him. Something that he still tries to do today. And he quotes Psalm 91. And because it's scripture, they're true words for sure. God will use his angels at times to protect those who are his. But Satan's problem is, of course, is that Jesus really believes those words, that his security rests in his Father's care. And he knows, Scripture says, that he should not try to test that. Here Christ quotes back Deuteronomy 6.16, where Moses tells God's people never to do that. Remembering back to the time of Israel's desert trial, where they demanded that God prove their care by giving them water back in Exodus 17. Jesus says he's not going to do this. Jesus says he doesn't need to do this. He trusts in his Father's care and in his will. The third and final temptation comes in verses 8 through 10. So here, the devil transports Jesus to a high mountain. We're not sure again how this happens or where exactly they go, but he gives the Lord perhaps a vision, it says, of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he tells Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So he says, do you want that instead of this? You can have it now. Just bow. Now, if you know scripture, Satan is called the ruler of the world by Jesus in John. Paul refers to the devil as the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Although Satan does have some sway during these days, it's limited. It won't last much longer, that's a fact. Satan's also called in John the father of lies, right? He's the great deceiver, and God is the true ruler of the world. 
Only he can see Jesus on the thrones of the earth. Satan this time doesn't use the words, if you didn't notice, um, if you are the Son of God. Now he's trying to worm his way in. He's trying to take the Father's place. He wants Jesus to call him Daddy. And he's trying to fool him, to bow down to him. But the Lord's not going to have anything to do with that. Here he alludes to Deuteronomy 6.13. And Jesus tells Satan to get lost. He replies in verse 10, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you serve. Jesus says he cannot disobey the first commandment. He will not bow to Satan's will and let his own desires as a man to rule. He trusts his father with his status. And he, what's more is he won't bypass the hard road his father has in front of him to have those things that are his right then, right there. In verse 11, we read that the devil leaves and the angels do come then and they no doubt are coming to give him food. Uh, more battles will come, but Jesus passes this first difficult test and he'll soon begin his ministry in Galilee. Well, back in the 90s, around the same time as that Be Like Mike ad campaign, there was this fad that was circulating through youth groups here in America. And maybe you've heard of it. Um, maybe you had a bracelet with it on there. It was WWJD. What would Jesus do? Now, let me just say there's a good impulse in that. Right? And it, it at least has some power outwardly to help. Because I seriously doubt that Jesus would call people some of the things that so-called Christians are calling online others today. What would Jesus do? You know, we probably should think about that. But here's the problem. You and I aren't Jesus, right? And Jesus is meant to be far more than just our example. That's a dangerous approach to the Christian life. And it's a terrible way to read the Bible. I want to move now from what we see happen here to second, what we have to grasp about it. We'll look at the point of this passage along with the path it puts us on. First, the point. So many a sermon has taken this approach. When Satan comes at you in temptation, get out your Bible and shout at him those words until he goes away. Now, it's not like those words aren't true. They're just not enough. We need far more than an example. We need a Savior. And that's the real point of the passage. I'm going to take a similar approach to what I took last week. I want you to think with me first about who Jesus is. We're learning here in Matthew that he's the beloved son. If you've been with us through this series so far, you know that Israel is called God's son in the Old Testament. And the Lord here wants us to see Jesus as the new, true, better son of God. How do we know that? Well, back in chapter 2, you may remember as we're reading the Christmas narrative, um, Joseph takes his family and he flees Herod. He flees Herod and they take off to Egypt. In verse 15 of Matthew 2, Matthew quotes Hosea saying that their eventual return from there was, quote, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. So the Israelites way back then fleeing Egypt through the Red Sea. Matthew is saying that they pointed ahead to Jesus, the ultimate son, the beloved son of God. And again, that's what the Father says to Jesus at his baptism. Verse 17, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. 
So God had poured out his affection upon Israel all those years, even despite their wanderings, and he's pouring it out here on Jesus. The Lord Jesus knows this, that he's loved by God the Father, that the will of his Father is best. And that's why he's not scrambling for bread or throwing himself off buildings or trading Satan for worship for a throne because he knows he's the son. And he also knows he's the servant king. He's the servant king. As I said last week, that pronouncement of verse 17, you're my beloved son, I'm pleased with you, comes from Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 is one of four groups of scripture in Isaiah that are called the servant songs. Okay, so the people in that day of Israel, they knew full well and they hoped for a king that would come. But they just had categories for one kind of king, a conquering king. So they knew the prophecies like we just read a few weeks back at Christmas from Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So they, they cherished those. They were pumped about them. They looked forward to them, but they completely missed and misunderstood these servant songs. Like the most famous one, perhaps, that we see in Isaiah 52 and 53. We talked about it numerous times here, but here verses 4 and 5 again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So Jesus here knows that he's the king, he knows that his kingdom will come, but he also realizes that he's coming as a servant. Right? To give his life for the nations as a ransom for many. He knows there's glory ahead, but there's suffering that has to come first. That commences there in the wilderness. That climaxes at the cross. And that is why he's not going to bow down to Satan and try to claim those kingdoms then. Because he knows who he is. Think about what Jesus has done. We can't miss this. We can't read the words here. And not think about Israel's own testing in the wilderness. That son of God is there for 40 years, right? Not just 40 days. And God gives them plenty of food there. Literally food coming down from the sky. But Israel still doesn't trust their father. They doubt his love. Moses, their leader, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights at a couple of different points. And here's Jesus, not just the greater son, but the greater deliverer here, who's fasting and fighting for us as people. Your mind also might go back to yet another one called the Son of God, who faces a temptation of his own there with his wife, Adam and Eve, right? They're not in a barren desert. No, they're in a lush garden. They've got all they need, and they still turn away. That one food that they can't have, they think they must have it, and they make the trade. And that question the serpent asked them, you know, hey, did God really say? It sure sounds a lot like what Satan is saying here. If you're the son of God, come on. The serpent gets them to doubt their father's love, and they go, Adam and Eve, from being kings of the earth to being slaves of that very enemy. But Jesus here is another kind of son, isn't he? The one to whom, again, the other lesser ones, the wayward ones, point. He doesn't give in to doubt. 
He believes to the end. He trusts his Father. He obeys him fully. He submits fully to the Spirit. He resists Satan's advances. And he welcomes us, those who believe to himself. He gives us his righteousness. He writes it on our hearts. So hear me. Jesus isn't just an example for us. He's a Savior. Thanks be to God for that gift. That is the point of this passage. And truly, it's the point of the Bible. And second, I do want to take our path one that I think is laid out by this passage. And think again about who we are. If we believe, as I said last week, we're also called sons and daughters of God. We're adopted into God's family. God doesn't just pronounce us not guilty like a judge, but he calls us loved. We become his kids. But did you know that we'll one day also be called kings? Again, as Adam and Eve were meant to serve at the beginning, 2 Timothy 2.12 says we'll one day reign with them. That's the picture that we see come to pass in the book of Revelation. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that we'll even judge angels. I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. We'll rule as intended, like Adam and Eve were supposed to, over the earth, if we believe, and that'll be forever and ever. That is who we are, sons, kings. So therefore, we don't have to cram our bodies with stuff because we know He'll meet our deepest needs. We don't have to worry about our safety because we know He'll care for us. We don't need to bow down to the powers of this world because we will inherit the earth. But we can't forget something that's really important. Like Jesus, we're also called to be servants, aren't we? Glory is in front of us, but before that, suffering. Our path, too, is one of service. We pick up our crosses and follow Jesus. We die to ourselves. We give our lives for Him. But Jesus says, as we'll see in Matthew, in denying ourselves, we really find ourselves. As we maybe lose the world, we end up gaining our souls. Of course, later, we gain the world. Let's think about also about what He'll do. Here I'm talking about in us, if we're believers. We're not just free from the penalty of sin. We're free from its power. We're not only not no longer orphans, we're no longer slaves. We no longer have to give in to temptation. We've been given His Holy Spirit. And He's remaking us little by little into the image of His Son. And one day we'll be fully and finally free from the presence of sin. Here now, Jesus not only understands us and what we go through as we fight sin and Satan, but he also rescues us. First, you know, at a point in time, but then more and more each day, he rescues us, he redeems us from sin and death. He's a work in us, if we're believers, by his spirit. Now, we won't fully conquer sin in this life, but his power in us allows us to resist the devil and watch him flee from us, as James 4, 7 puts it. We can trust in our Father's love, and in His will for our lives. Well, for a few minutes here, I want to turn to thinking about our approach when we're tempted. Again, I don't think this is the main point of the passage, but I think it's an implication. When Jesus saves us, He calls us to follow Him. We take up our cross, and we too battle temptation. First, remember. First, remember. First and foremost, recall what I just talked about. Who Jesus is and what he has done. Who we are, 
what He'll do in us. It's only in remembering the gospel that we can have any success at all in fighting sin. Because we do not resist and obey to get God to accept us. We realize we're accepted. And then we seek to battle against sin and do what He asks. It's that reality of the gospel, of the good news, that gives us freedom, that gives us an actual path to victory, that gives us hope in our trials. But I want you to hear something else. I I, I love what Tim Chester likes to say. He says, when we're tempted with sin, we shouldn't say just, I should not do this. He says, we should say, I need not do this. There's There's a distinction there that seems minor. But it's massive. I should not do this. I need not do this. This is really what Jesus is telling Satan. And he's preaching to himself. He has a good, loving dad. Who cares for him. Who has a will for him that's good. He does not need these things. He doesn't need to listen to Satan. And that's the same with us. Why would we want to do those things? Second, preach. To the devil, as we see here, and to ourselves, who so easily forget. We have to read God's word and hide it in our hearts. We do. The voice of God has to be louder in here than the shouts of the world out there, or we're going to be in trouble. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to a funeral of a remarkable Christian man the dad of a, a dear sister here in Cars. And he died after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. And a couple years back, they had what I think was his 80th birthday party. And one thing that this man loved to do was sing, and to sing about what Jesus had done. And so they spent in a pretty significant part of that night singing hymns. And at one point that evening, uh, he began to approach the stage. And I think those in attendance got a little bit nervous, you know. Um, he'd forgotten a lot, you know, what might he say. But the music kicked in, and the lyrics just clicked. And he just sang his heart out, right? Truth about God, what he had done in the hardest moments for him, they just came out. And that's just a, a beautiful picture. In our hard moments... What will come out, right? In our temptation, in our deepest time of trial, will we remember and will we proclaim the glories of God as we see Jesus do here, as this man of God did? Third, cry out. Pray. Jesus is out in the desert. He's fasting, and that means he's no doubt praying. This is Jesus, God the Son. Like a toddler in a crib who's sensing danger, who's fearing for her life. We have to cry out for help. We have to yell for our dad. If he, our Lord, needed his father's help, and we see this throughout the Gospels again and again, how much more would we forth link up with other believers? Yes, you might say Jesus is here alone, but you ain't Jesus, right? You and I need others to remember for us and to remind us of God's truth when we struggle. We need to be strong for one another. We need to be there for one another. Remember these powerful words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We've quoted them here before, but a man who definitely knew trials and temptations. 
He says the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother is sure. Fifth, lean in. Lean in. So many people who professed Christ for years are just jumping out of the ship today with the trials we're going through. You know, I don't want to get any more of those emails. I'm begging you, don't lean into your doubt. Do what Jesus does. Lean into your Father, into His words. Lean into your faith when you're tempted. I used this illustration a few weeks back. But don't walk over and stand at the edge of the boat. When the winds and the waves pick up, you know, you shift the weight there, you're certainly going to fall in. Come to the middle of the boat where Jesus is, where His people are, there you'll be safe. Bring your doubts there. Ask your questions there. There's no shame in that. We all have them. I just plead with you, lean in, not out and away. Now, before I close, stay with me a little bit longer. I want to take on some questions. Some that you may have, certainly ones that I've wrestled with myself, and I'd say still do. But I have some questions. First, you may ask, what's the big deal here? Why not just follow these desires? It's so easy, especially today, to just let the current take us to just do what we want, what the world already says is fine. You know, what are the, the most repeated words probably today? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. But we have to remember, we're designed by a creator who happens to be our father. And following those desires don't just put us going against how we're made. It dishonors the one who loves us. It works against his care. And beyond that, because of that, it just leads to pain. We don't get anywhere when we go against our, our nature. It's when we go against his will for our lives that it just leads to agony. Second here, what's God think he's doing and how am I really responsible? You probably noticed this passage says the spirit leads Jesus into these temptations. And he also carries us into trials. That distinction right there is really important. The same word in Greek that we find here can be translated as either tempt or test. Tempt or test, it's like it's two sides of the same coin. What Satan means to destroy, God uses to test us, to see whether or not we're truly his. He uses those things to refine us, to make us look more and more like him. James says in chapter 1, verse 13, that no one tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God. God isn't tempted. He tempts no one, right? Even though he's in control, our sinful desires... As evil stimuli pass before them, they are what are tempted. And they either, the, those things either suck us in and pull us further from God, or they make us stronger in His grace and love as we lean into Him. But though, yeah, God is sovereign over all these things, over all things in the world, Lord, we're still responsible 
as we walk into those temptations and we're still responsible as we sin. And in the spirit of God, we must fight against them. Third, does Jesus really understand? Could he even really have sinned anyhow? I said earlier that Jesus understands us. He rescues us and he understands us, but you may resist that and I understand that. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But you might say, yeah, but that makes not a lot of sense. I mean, isn't he God? I mean, how's that fair? How could he really have felt what I feel? Yeah, but you have to remember, Jesus is not just God, right? He's also man. And what's important to understand is Jesus isn't leaning on his deity to resist temptation, or that objection would make sense. He's not typing in some kind of divine cheat code. He's approaching Satan's schemes as a human being in the power of the Spirit. So therefore, he stands as our representative, resisting on our behalf fully as a man in the Spirit, and that, on the contrary, gives us encouragement. But you ask back, you say, well, could he have sinned? Could he really have sinned? And I say, yes, but no. Here's a, here's a question. Could I murder my wife? Certainly yes, but definitely no. Do I have the physical ability to do this? She'd say no, but she'd be wrong. She'd be very wrong. But do I have that in my heart? Absolutely not. Did Jesus have the ability, so to speak, to deny his relationship with God and turn towards sin? Yes, but did he have the fallen desire to do such things, to want that? No. So we have to understand as we grow in His grace, as we become more and more like our Lord, sin will also become more and more disgusting to us. But the bad news is that doesn't really mean things will get necessarily a lot easier. Here's something else to think about. Who has a harder time with temptation? A godly person, a mature person, or a weak and immature person? Well, if you didn't know this, it's the person who battles the hardest and comes out standing on the other side who really feels the brunt of temptation. Right? I mean, you just give in, you don't feel anything. <clears throat> Here's this quote from C.S. Lewis. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it in Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realism. So you see, Jesus does understand, and more than we could ever realize, because he really fought, and he really won, he can understand, but he can also help. Fourth, why even try when I always seem to fail? I can relate to that, for sure. It goes back to what I said earlier, though. We have hope. If we're Christians, we've been freed from sin. We have a spirit within us. Sinning may be frequent, of course, in this life. 
but it's not inevitable. We can resist it in His strength, and we will more and more as we grow in His grace. Going along with what I just said, though, contrary to what we may think, it may not feel easier as we grow and change. Right? Because we're going to move on from shallow, superficial sins to those that are deeper and harder to recognize, first of all, and then to battle. We'll settle less and less with just sinning again. We'll devote ourselves more and more to turning away. And again, like Jesus, we'll feel more and more the, the pain and difficulty of going toe-to-toe with the devil and not just giving up and giving in. But in Christ, though, there's hope for change. The gospel transforms us. I want you to hear this, and maybe this will be an encouragement for you today. What demonstrates that we're sons of a living God is not that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we have a 9 out of 10 versus a 6 out of 10 for the day. Only Jesus is the 10 out of 10. Only he's the, he's the standard. What demonstrates that we're sons of the living God is that we keep battling. That we, that we repent when we sin. That we're humble when we fall. We get up in His strength the next day and we keep going. That leads to how we wrap up. I want to get back to my basketball days. I know you guys are excited for that. If you've not heard that enough in the sermons over the years. Um, but believe it or not, um, back in those same days I talked about, dunk montages were just becoming the thing. They were just starting to take off. And yeah, you can thank Mike for that. My best friend and I, we watched him play basketball all the time. And one day we decided that we were going to make our own dunk video. Um, now he was pretty athletic. He could actually dunk. He could dunk like Jordan, but he could dunk. For me, it was going to take some supernatural help. Um, it never came. So what did we do? Well, of course, you know what we did. We lowered his goal, right? We turned the crank. We lowered the goal. We piped in some Wild Wild West by Cool Modi. Listen to that later today. Be blessed. Uh, we threw on some black sunglasses. He, he grabbed his um, VHS camcorder. And we made, I think, a pretty epic dunk video. I, I, I don't know where, but we lost it in one of our moves, or I, maybe I'd show it to you sometime. Um, but isn't that how we so often approach Scripture? Passages like this? We can't begin to do it. What do we do? Well, we may give up and kind of give in, and we don't try, or we do something else. We lower the goal. We try to make the standard something that we can reach. Maybe we just focus on the sins that we think we can conquer. And we kind of compare ourselves to others and, and judge them. But we're just fooling ourselves. God's standard is perfection. A standard that's met in Christ. And God's not impressed by that kind of stuff. You know, he knows that you're just using a, a weird camera angle. You know, it's lame. Here's another approach. I actually have a kid now who can dunk. And with my DNA, I thought that would never be possible. <laughs> but back in the day, I would help him when he wanted to dunk on our goal in the driveway. I'd lift up that toddler, right? And I'd help him throw it down. You know, most of the time, he'd still miss back then. But he'd say, Daddy, help me dunk, help me dunk, and I'd hold him up there. Obeying God, fighting temptation, it's more than we could ever do on our own. The call to be like Jesus can knock us on our butts, but it should put us on our knees. As we call out in faith and prayer in the moment for His help for something miraculous, 
And as we plead with him over the long haul to grow us, to change us into people who can more and more choose holiness over sin. Until that day when he returns, we're still going to miss a lot. In fact, it's going to feel like we do that most of the time. But because Jesus is the obedient son and he has defeated our great enemy on our behalf, obedience is at least possible in his strength for his glory. And it will happen more and more through the years over the long haul. Fight temptation and the power of him who defeated it. Let's pray. Father, I pray, I'm thankful as I look out and I, I see faces of, of just people that are humble. People that the gospel has transformed them. Um, they're sinners, but they're not judgmental. <laughs> Generally speaking, um, they, they know their sin. They know how weak they are. And um, I thank you for your grace in us. And I pray that that would be more and more the case, Lord, that um, we would know ourselves well, um, who we are in Christ, um, but who we often tragically return to be. And that would just make us more and more dependent on the hope that we see here of what your son did and what he'll do in us. Father, would you work that in us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.